all that ASMR stuff. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Awesome. All right. Welcome to Indie Worldwide. We have with us today Preet Singh, founder of the Design X community, community and also the Five to Nine conference. Is that right? Absolutely. So I wanted to start Absolutely. off with Design X. Um, how would you describe that community, and how did it get started? The the description has been evolving uh, quite a bit. So initially, it started as a Toronto-based community to bring designers of our backgrounds together. Uh, that was almost four years ago, and currently we are a global design community uh, of majorly, I would say, product designers, but still with a big intersectional focus. Uh, you know, coming together to connect. Uh, learn and grow together in their design careers. So that's kind of the more, you know, the uh, the uh, flowery, fluffy definition of our mm -hmm. community. But on the more tangible side, you know, we are an uh, online community, Slack group of 5,000 plus designers. Um, majority, I would say, still, still from North America, but we have a growing presence in Europe as well. And then apart from the Slack community, you know, we have our newsletters uh, around design content. Uh, we do salary survey reports, and then we also have a portfolio of conferences. So you mentioned one five to nine conference, which is all about side projects. Uh, we do a design leadership conference, which is one of the largest uh, design leadership focused conferences uh, globally called the Design Leadership Summit. And then last year, thanks to the pandemic, we also kickstarted a week long design conference, virtual design conference called Remote Design Week. And uh, last year at that time, it was the largest on virtual design conference with over 3200 3400 designers joining uh, globally yeah um so that was kind of the more flurry fluffy definition that i shared and mm -hmm. then um on the more tangible side we have kind of two major components to our community so we have you know the online part uh, which is more i would say kind of um, asynchronous connections so we have a slack community we have newsletters around content uh, we do more heavy content like salary surveys and you know conference directories and things like that and then uh, kind of a more closer um, mechanism of uh, you know connecting designers uh, across geographies is through virtual events so we do a lot of like networking sessions virtual talks as well as larger conferences so you already mentioned one uh, called the five to nine conference that we started last mm -hmm. year which is focused on site projects uh, we also have a portfolio of design conferences uh, you know, we have a design leadership summit, which is one of the largest design leadership focused conferences. And, uh, you know, we've been doing that majorly kind of offline in-person format. Then last year, thanks to the pandemic, we also uh, started a week long virtual design conference uh, focused on the very, very different aspects of being a designer. And that's called Remote Design Week. And that was, uh, at that time, it was the largest kind of attended design conference when we started it last year uh, with over 3,400, 3,200 to 3,400 designers joining globally. So quite a few aspects uh, to the community. How was the transition from in-person to virtual? I attended the, nine to f the 5 to 9, and I thought it was really a uh, well-done online conference. It was one of the better ones I've been to. Um, but what was that process like for you, for you guys? Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to hear uh, he had a good experience as an attendee. I think um, in terms of the transition in going from, you know, being used to offline conferences to producing online conferences, the, the approach changes, um, you know, being a designer, I generally tend to look at 
almost like the user experience, user flow, user journey of these initiatives or experiences that we put together. So online is very different than offline one. Um, offline one, you know, there's kind of a, already a mental model that's been set, whether it's about the ticket price, whether it's about the commitment required that, you know, you, know, you might have to travel and stay in a hotel and attend the conference for two days, and then you're kind of all in. Whereas in virtual, even though you might really like the speakers and the content, it's still usually for most folks, it's one of the things that you'll be doing that day or for the duration of those few days when the conference is happening. Um, so the commitment definitely is a little lower, you know, even if you're joining as a team, uh, you, you, you might still try to fit in your work during that day. You might take care of uh, your household chores uh, when you've told your team that you're attending the conference. So uh, there is a little bit of mental model difference. So we mm -hmm. tweaked our pricing uh, based on that. You know, we would charge 500 bucks for an in-person conference and, you know, for virtual conferences, we would charge 50 bucks. Right. Um, so you're definitely going for a larger group of audience. So, you know, you're not looking for 500 people to pay 500 bucks, but you're looking for three, 4,000 people or more people to, you know, uh, pay you 50 bucks to hundred bucks for the conference. Um, the overall revenue also is usually lower for virtual conferences in our case, but then your costs are drastically lower. You're not paying for fancy venues. We do compensate speakers for their time, uh, like, you know, in terms of like a, a token gift and things like those, uh, even monetary. Um, but it's not, you're not flying them in. You're not paying for the flights. You're not paying for the hotel stay. You're not reimbursing Ubers, right? So there is a lot of uh, massive difference in the in the expenses that are spent on an uh, offline conference. Now, online, yes, you have the tooling. You need different kind of experts to run the all the kind of the sessions and you know uh, live streaming and things like those. So definitely that that's a different kind of bucket of costs. Then apart from that, I would say the the marketing and the promotional aspect also varies a little bit. Uh, virtual conferences you can, and in both our cases, we promoted them like just two months before the actual conference. Whereas if it's an offline conference, you start promoting like six months in advance because people need to book hotels, book flights, ask for the budget. Exactly, exactly. So there are these kind of different approaches as an organizer, uh, you know, that we we noticed. Um, yeah, and it's it was all everyone was trying to figure it out last year when we did remote design week. We did the conference for five straight days, so we changed the format to five days um, instead of you know just taking a two day conference online, which most folks were doing. So we spread our programming across five days. Which was, uh, which was kind of a unique model at that time. To go off of that, um, what is it that makes a conference worthwhile? Why do people pay $50 or $500 to attend virtual or in person? I would say the, the story that we tell ourselves in justifying the budget is usually that I'm going to get a lot of learning out of the content uh, at mm -hmm. the conference. It's the speakers that I'm going to listen to. I've, I've, I recently, not recently, like six months ago, I read a report by Deloitte that was published around the learning, the value of learning from conferences. And there was a, mm -hmm. a really, um, there was a really surprising data point that out of the total budget that's spent on conf on employees attending conferences globally, which is like, you know, some crazy number, um, only 5% of it is actually returned back to the organization, like the return on investment in terms of 
how much learning then trickles back into the organization, into the team from the person who attended the conference is less than 5%. And that's usually because you go to the conference, you know, even though you're excited about the content, you can only listen to so much content in the day and retain it and process it and analyze it and think how that impacts your organization. So usually conferences are a good morale booster too. You know, you might have just two, three strong takeaways from the conferences, but it's more of the energy that you get from being there, being with other people that are also kind of going through similar struggles. Um, that's that's uh, that's really helpful from a content perspective. Now, usually what ends up, ends up happening is that the more intangible value that you get from the conference is what usually justifies, you know, this whole convention of investing in attending conferences from an employer's perspective or an individual's perspective, which is more about the conversations and connections mm -hmm. that you're going to make at the conference. So while you are going to listen to the speaker there, it's usually those conversations after a certain talk where you will discuss the speaker with someone or where, you know, you'll kind of uh, share how what was just shared on the stage applies to you and your situation. And then the other person kind of shares their story and you end up kind of sh sharing notes or even uh, you know, we've had so many people that met each other in our Slack group during our virtual conferences last year that are still in touch. And, you know, they have regular Zoom calls or they have regular kind of one-on-one -on -one virtual coffee chats discussing their struggles. So those kind of relationships, uh, those kind of conversations that get triggered by, you know, those incredible content that gets produced at conferences, that whole combination is what I would say, you know, j makes people justify the cost of the ticket or of attending an event. From like the user psychology point of view or the customer, do you think they are more buying the ticket for the knowledge or buying the ticket for the connections? Like, are they aware that there's a difference between mm -hmm. kind of the um, surface level value of the mm -hmm. conference as far as like, oh, these are the cool speakers. They're going to talk about these topics that are useful to wherever I work versus the kind mm -hmm. of mm, more intangible, like, I want to make friends yeah. aspect of it. Yeah. How much of that do you think is like conscious versus subconscious? Yeah, um, again, just based on our experience, I would say most folks who are attending kind of our DesignX conferences for the first time, they do come in for the content and then they stay for the community, right? So they're coming in because they saw the great speaker lineup. So those are, you know, again, the photos of the speakers are still the mm -hmm. strongest hook. But then the reason that they are coming each day out of the five-day conference is not because of just that one speaker, but it's because, you know, because of the energy in the community, yeah. uh, how people are discussing things and how they, the networking sessions we are having post every talk. So those kind of things are what I would say keep bringing people back. Uh, yeah, so definitely that psychology, it's, they come for the more tangible stuff that they can see and justify mm -hmm. the value for, but it's more of the intangibles that I think, um, you know, have them excited even once the conference ends and then attend again next year. And I would think too, even um, on the intangible side, like if you're the veteran conference go and you know you're really going to shake hands, um, by seeing the pictures of who's going to be speaking, that informs you of who you're going to meet at the conference because you know what mm -hmm. kind of people are going to want to hear from what kinds of speakers. Mm -hmm. So either way, the same marketing um, attracts this, the, can attract both types of consumer. Mm -hmm. Very um, true. Yeah. So are you, it seems like you're, you're full time on this right now, right? On conferences and the DesignX community 
and we mm. might be frozen again. <laughs> oh, really? I can see you. Mm, 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 mm. I just thought I'd so, refresh. I could hear you. Okay. No worries. Um, I just wanted to take it back real quick, actually, to the uh, finance differences between virtual and in-person. I'm curious if uh, which one ends up being more profitable once you take into account like the difference between expenses and everything. Yeah, I would say we are still trying to figure that out. Uh, based on last year alone, uh, in-person conferences are still, you know, more uh, like much more enticing in terms of revenue mm -hmm. and profit. Uh, and the biggest difference we noticed is not even just about the tickets. So we've, of course, you know, like we try to make our community initiatives as accessible as possible. So, but you know, that's not speaking on behalf of all virtual conferences. That's just us. Mm -hmm. So. That's why we kept a five-day conference with packed schedule, packed speakers for fifty bucks, right? And we had we had our audience members telling us like you could have charged more, but then at the same time, that's why we had people from India, Pakistan staying up till three, four in the morning to attend the conference, right? So that was really, really incredible uh, to see and really motivating for us as a team. Now we've we've seen conferences not budge their price even though they've gone virtual, so they were charging twelve hundred bucks for in-person conference. They're still charging twelve hundred bucks, and you know maybe that model works as well. Um, the main uh, kind of revenue difference, uh, or the factor that caused a big revenue difference for us, I've seen mm. is in terms of sponsorships. Mm. So, and that's one part that I, it still kind of uh, you know pokes me a little bit as a community builder that you do. We do a lot of community building, you know, very I would say authentic community building throughout the year through different initiatives. Um, and even when it comes to a virtual conference, you know, we are doing networking sessions, we have yoga sessions in between, so people can stretch, you know, they are not just uh, slouched on the desk listening to talks uh, continuously. But you'll still find speakers, you know, justify a higher sponsorship budget, or oh, sorry, sponsors. You'll, mm -hmm. you'll still find sponsors justify a higher budget for their sponsorship spend. Um, because they can get a booth, a physical booth at a conference, right? So it's there's something kind of, I don't know, like a more stronger hook to justify the investment. Whereas in a virtual conference, you know, it's um, it's almost like the sponsorship budget gets cut down to like 30% or 20%. The other factor is also when you do in-person conferences, sponsors usually can only do a few conferences a year because they need to fly out their team, you know, stay there for a few mm -hmm. days, all those things. Now with things having gone virtual, the competition in terms of sponsorships is much higher, right? Because with throwing a virtual conference needs, and again, you know, I might offend some people with, with uh, such statements, but uh, throwing a virtual conference might uh, need kind of, you know, might have lower barriers to entry as compared mm -hmm. to putting together a physical in-person conference. Uh, because the just the logistics and operations on the on the physical side are so much more complicated and more nuanced. Yeah, just to make a physical event happen, you have to have so many things working in concert that mm -hmm. you're almost guaranteed, like barring the occasional fire festival, like a certain level of quality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to get absolutely. to. Um, <laughs> it's hard to get people through the door if it, if you don't at least have the basics of like people in absolutely. room together with food. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. And sound system. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, on the community side, we talked a bit about mm -hmm. like what makes a conference worth attending, what makes a community worth being a part of, or what makes a community mm. good. Yeah, that's a 
That's a great question and a tough one. Um, I definitely am trying to still figure it out. Uh, we are in constant strive to, you know, how we can improve our community. Just before uh, hopping on the um, on the call to record this podcast, I I posted in our one of our feedback Slack channels in the Slack community that you know we are doing a Slack cleanup this weekend. So, what is one channel that you wouldn't mind getting axed? So it's that constant, mm-hmm. you know, uh, constant fight to how we can improve the experience, how we can remove the noise. And really focus on why people are coming to this community. What is the value they're seeking? And that definitely varies for different groups of people, right? So you definitely find almost like micro communities within your larger community. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what we've been trying to do is kind of really hone in on some of the core values that at least we as a team and I as the founder want to foster in our community. And then, you know, anyone that does not align with those values, that might not be the best fit. So there's definitely a little bit of, you know, kind of like uh, the founder or the team building the community, kind of laying down the vision and the goal um, and people resonating with that vision and those to values. provide like a concrete example, can we use the DesignX community? What are the Absolutely. values that you want your, your community to hold or what are the the things that people are coming into the community seeking. Absolutely, absolutely. So for DesignX, I would say we've always, or I've always strived to make the community be all about you know authentic conversations and even uncom- uncomfortable conversations at some point. Uh, one of the big reasons I started the DesignX community was that I found it tough to relate with designers at the events that I used to attend before I you know, started DesignX. There would be a certain air of, you know, oh, we are designers, you know, like uh, there's a certain way you're supposed to behave, a certain way you're supposed to talk, um, you know, uh, and certain amount of virtue, virtue signaling as well if you go on design Twitter. And some of those things used to bother me. Oh. Uh, here's a, um, so let's, a hypothetical yeah, for you. Yes. Um, if you had to bootstrap a new community from scratch, how would you how would you go about it? I'm, a lot of our listeners they're trying to do things on their own. They're trying to get things started. You're starting from zero, no community. What's day What's day one look like? How do you get? How do you build a community from scratch? I would say day one, you need to really identify. Uh, you know, what brings those people together. Um, I, I don't know where I uh, read this quote, but it was about that, you know, to in order to create a room, you do need the walls and the door, right? So there needs mm-hmm. to be some kind of constraint that brings those people together. For us, when I started, it was designers being in Toronto. So there was a geography constraint and that's what, you know, made the Slack invite a little more appealing for those folks. Mm-hmm. So if you're starting a community for say developers, don't just be like, any developers go as niche as possible because you can always go wider later you know so if you're like okay wordpress developers then you know don't just make it about wordpress developers but you go even further niches of the geography is it you know what do those developers do are those wordpress developers that make custom themes you know okay yeah that sounds pretty enticing and that's you know so you kind of really identify your niche uh do your research on finding out how those how those people are already you know connecting or uh, resolving that urge to connect with like-minded folks. So communities are not that much different than, you know, uh, building your own product or SaaS platform. 
it's kind of a similar mindset that you're looking at how are people what problem they have how are they currently solving it but i would say community has a more you are not looking for uh, kind of tangible gains right away right so it's a little more kind of long tail um, you know vision and sometimes there are no tangible gains than just creating value for everyone and not just for you know the founder so day one that's yeah that's what i would say start with your research you know on the niche and then put up a form right much like you would do for a product and see how many folks are interested go into you know wherever you find that audience um, and see if people are interested now one thing i did with design x which also really helped was uh, kickstart with an event cuz not everyone needs to start a slack community like community platforms like slack or discord or anywhere are a lot of work and i'm sure you know you know you run a slack community um and you put a lot of everyone as a as the community kind of curator you need to invest a lot of effort and you don't find the engagement always consistent and that can be really discouraging so i would say rather than taking on the commitment to start something that's always on like a slack group start with an event you know find leaders in that space who are interested to talk about the topic that you're looking to build the community on and just you know do one one event do one webinar do one virtual talk you get the email list and then you see if those folks want to continue chatting afterwards um and that's i think a more low risk and more organic way of kickstarting a community so how did um designx start it was like a meetup group in toronto did you start with uh, a like slack group or was it like a meetup at first yeah so so i actually did not start this slack group that we uh, used for designx mm. so uh, i had this idea of this vision of the kind of community i want to build for designers in toronto mm. i found someone who had just one month ago started a slack group they were about 50 designers uh, in toronto and kind of there were like a lot of parallels and so i approached you know the person who started it his name was uh, his name is andrew uh, and he's a good friend now and i was like andrew i don't want to create another slack group i like what you're doing but this is my vision like let's collaborate and that's what happened and i joined the slack group i started you know helping him curate the conversations and then kind of took more of ownership there and then uh, i think once we hit 100 people on slack i was like let's meet up let's meet up in person and let's talk about you know the state of design and uh, that meetup even though it was a very kind of organic you know evolution from moving from slack to meeting offline uh, i approached a few leaders in toronto and they were like you know people at the top like really well known agency leaders enterprise leaders and startup leaders uh, we were doing a panel discussion and all three of them said yes and i was like oh really okay so this is happening and that's how you know our first event uh, we already had like 90 people because that was the capacity of the venue Uh, and mm-hmm. it was a paid event so that was one thing we set the bar from you know the get go that people need to pay in order to attend but then we invested all the money back into getting some really good food and open bar little swag bags mm-hmm. custom design with our brand uh so the experience you know as even as a first time attendee of a community no one has heard of before it was really good and from there it really took off and you know in 3 4 months we were our meetups were like 300 plus people usually uh constrained by the venue limit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me ask you another question then. Um well, I just wanted to actually point out that um 
what you did, finding an existing Slack group and then collaborating, I think is uh, a really useful story because a lot of people will want to start something and they'll see that there's others in their space, even really young um, people, like really uh, young ventures trying to do what they're doing, and they don't think to collaborate. They get scared off right away. Uh, so I think that's a really um, powerful anecdote that you can you don't have to start everything from scratch. It's, it's okay to reach out to like the existing players and try to collaborate, and it can be a big leg up, um, and that can be like a really great way to find your people. Hey, you're back. <laughs> yeah, I had to refresh, sorry, because I completely threw me off. But I, I, I heard your question. So it was all about like, you know, kind of talking more about why why collaborate or how to collaborate instead of kind of kickstarting your own thing around the community. Is that correct? Yeah, or? I think, yeah, exactly. I feel like people will want to start something. Like a lot of people in your shoes, they look for, to, they're looking for design communities in Toronto. They see this already Slack group and they say, oh, okay, it already exists. Nothing for me to do. Versus, you look at that and say, oh, great, like, it already exists. I already am like 50 persons ahead of where I was going to be. Let's, I can work together with this person. <laughs> and I think that's um, just a good lesson, you know? It's like you don't have to start everything in a void. It's okay to, to play with others. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It, it, you know, the funny thing is when I thought of the idea of the kind of community I want to build, there were already meetups in Toronto around design that were 200, 250 people plus meetups, you know, like the mm -hmm. size. I approached at least four, three or four of the leading communities at that time. And I was like, this is what I'm trying to do. I really like what you're doing and I would love to collaborate together. Mm -hmm. And sadly, you know, like, except for Andrew, every one of them was kind of turned me down and they were extremely protective of their audience and maybe mm -hmm. rightfully so, you know, like I was just a stranger coming to them and they thought, you know, I'm here to take their audience or something. Uh, but then six months in to when we started, you know, most of those communities or maybe one year, most of them were completely non-existent, right? So not to, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, we did something really well, but I'm saying there is really val a lot of value in collaboration. Uh, mm -hmm. But those things you should not forget. Like I'm still, uh, every time I see someone in our Slack community trying to start something, I do usually, you know, approach them or encourage them to be like, yeah, reach out to us, you know, uh, let's figure out how we can collaborate together, right? Because uh, there's always stuff that I'm eager to learn how they're doing stuff, how they're approaching, you know, learning about design. So as long as you are focused on the larger vision and the larger goal, I think there's ample amount of space for everyone to collaborate on. And in fact, the you know, the indie hacker community, uh, your indie community of makers, you know, it's all, I, I find indie creators, indie makers, uh, they are usually quite open to that collaborative attitude. Mm -hmm. um, sadly, many verticals in conventional like tech, you know, ecosystem, uh, especially folks that are in a job and then are doing it on the side. I, I, def I definitely, or maybe it's it's been only the few community leaders that I interacted with. Uh, I found found the attitude to be a little more closed towards uh, collaborations. It's hard to even get somebody to um, like do work for your vision unless they are also motivated by their own. Like people aren't motivated by your vision. They're motivated by what they want to do. So collaboration mm -hmm. is super powerful because you get people working on 
your, on their own vision, so they're super mm. motivated in a way that helps you mm. too. So it, mm. I feel like it's the only way to really harvest that or pay them a lot of money. <laughs> like I'd rather have shared visions than, than dollars <laughs> being exchanged. Yeah. Um, and I think um, it's important too to point out that it doesn't matter who's out there already because a lot of what makes a community mm. strong and useful is how it's different from what's already out mm. there. A community is defined, like you said, by doors and, and walls, right? Mm. So mm. having existing communities can be a great way to start your own for all the people mm. that are dissatisfied with those existing communities for some reason. If you can point out why you're different, then you have a community. Absolutely. Potentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of these communities you'll see are, you know, by people like yourself and me. Um, so it's, it's mostly you'll see like kind of like solo founders trying to do something good. Mostly you'll find communities not to be very lucrative kind of business models. There are very few examples of people that have been able to monetize it. So all to say that even the the existence of many of these communities, even if you're like, I want to do something on this topic, but there are already, you know, three leaders in two years, you know, there might be only just one left because it is a really hard uh, kind of uh, project organization business to run. And so you don't find a lot of people sticking through it. Uh, till the end. Yeah, I feel that like it has to be something that you you do almost automatically because, like, especially an always-on community like a Slack group, unless mm -hmm. you really like being there, it's going to be mm -hmm. a drag. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so you have to like being there. Which yes. ideally, this is why you started the community in the first place because you're trying to find your people, and so it's like hanging more like hanging out with your friends than than exactly. grinding. Yep, yep, doesn't feel like work. That's that's the feeling you should get. Glitching again. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. How about on to the conferences? So instead of having like one gigantic design X branded conference, we've got like a series of conferences. Are these all? Do you consider them all part of the same thing, or are the conferences in their own bubble apart from Design X? Where's the where's the interface? All in the same thing. Uh, all part of our initiative slash experiments. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I. I don't know if it's being part of, I don't know if it's part of being a designer or a founder. I, I do really like to, you know, continue to experiment and see what resonates best with our community from a business perspective, but also from, you know, just a community builder perspective. Like I, I want to do things that the community really finds helpful. So I, just because I did one conference one year, I don't want to keep repeating it just for the sake of it. Right, like, oh, we started this thing and now it has to be an annual cadence just because that's how conferences are done. So I have, I have no qualms doing a one-off conference. We did the five to nine conference last year. It was a lot of work, um, but I would say the the financial rewards were, were lower than a design conference just because mm. our audience is mostly designers. It's not about creators and makers solely, right? But I really enjoyed it. And I think that a lot of people that attended from our community found it really valuable, right? So if this year, you know, our, our folks are like, uh, you know, we wanna learn about something different, more intersectional, and maybe it's more about automations or no code or something else, mm -hmm. you know, then, then we'll put together something around that. So I definitely do treat them as uh, kind of part of the same family, uh, you know, under the same family of brands under DesignX but I don't take on the pressure that I need to keep running all of them with the same fuel uh, you know, behind them. I think that's a pretty non-obvious 
and also exciting strategy to have your conferences not be the same brand as like the the underlying community. Mm-hmm. One, it seems like something that like it's easier to get people hyped about new things. And so if you always have a new thing coming out, then there's always some hype that you can mm-hmm. that you can uh, use to kind of power the initial excitement about the conference. And mm-hmm. like you said, kind of brings new brand new eyeballs that maybe didn't resonate exactly with the Design X, but now that they have um, the first taste of it, they're like, oh, actually, yeah, I see how this relates to what I'm trying to do in my life. Mm. And But they would have never heard of you if you had branded it as a Design X conference. No, absolutely. Five nine to five, or five to nine instead. Yeah. Five to nine. <laughs> I always yeah, five to nine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Mm. I think you're, you're spot on um, about the, the branding aspect and you know generating excitement. And I think it's really exciting for us as a team, too. You know, we, we get to explore a completely new visual branding for each conference, a new swag, uh, new mm-hmm. styles, and we can experiment with newer things that usually you don't try to do with your existing brand, right? Because mm-hmm. that already has a certain amount of expectations and constraints. Especially when it's a group of designers. You know designers mm. <laughs> love them to be rebranded. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> true. <laughs> It is. It is quite self-serving too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did you? Was this kind of the um, explicit plan? Like we're gonna do rebranded conferences in order to attract new eyeballs? Or just kind of something that or or felt right? No, it was. It was definitely just something that uh, felt right, and also you know, I. One of the biggest reasons I ventured on this journey of also being, you know, just a founder, community builder, was to do things that I want to do and the way I want to do it, right? So you have complete mm-hmm. freedom, complete control. There's no one kind of calling the shots for you. Uh, so that's why many of these things were kind of more instinct driven too. You know, five to nine conference. I didn't want to call it the Design X side project conference or something. And I was like, oh, five to nine, like sounds really exciting. Yeah. Um, and I wanted it to have a certain, you know, kind of a visual branding, a little retro, uh, you know, a little more fun with the colors, uh, but still dark themed because, you know, I was trying to, it's like you're, you're uh, kind of working through the nights while you have a day job for your side project. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of those things we try to reflect in the brand. So yeah, definitely not as strategically uh, intentioned, uh, mm-hmm. but more kind of organic uh, ways of approaching it. It turned out really nice. It's a great turn of phrase you found too, contrasting the nine to five job with your five to nine uh, passion projects. So I wanted to touch a bit on kind of the difference between conferences that succeed, conferences that fail and are terrible, especially going back to the lower barriers of entry that we have now with all these virtual conferences. Mm-hmm. What is your like mental models for making our conference good? I think the the mental models for us are definitely always starting with great content. So whatever theme you're picking, the content, because that is going to be the the biggest trust building aspect of uh, you know an audience member buying a ticket, purchasing a ticket, or even kind of justifying it to their employer. So getting great speakers in really important uh, to make sure that the content content delivery is great. Uh, secondly, trying to, you know, uh, make sure the entire experience of the conference also has ample amount of time for very kind of like natural conversations and connections. So whether it's, you know, making sure the platform has 
different ways for audience members to interact, use chiffies or emojis and things like those. So it does feel like you know the excitement is there even though it's a virtual conference. And then lastly, I would say, and again, you know, this goes to one of our design X values as well, that how do we make sure that everything we do is authentic, is really true, uh, mm-hmm. kind of like real, right? So there's there's not like a facade or uh, kind of a mask on. And so to be more specific about it, we, except for once when one of our speakers uh, kind of uh, just got COVID, um, all mm-hmm. our talks were always live streamed. We never pre-recorded our talks, even though it would be much more cleaner. You would not have AV glitches. You know, you could make the the slides uh, really well designed if you're pre-recording and pre-editing the talks. We always kept them live because you know we really wanted to mimic the experience of an in-person event. When you go to an in-person conference, you do have AV glitches. You do have the speaker pulling on a slide and then maybe pausing for one minute. You know mm-hmm. to uh, remember what they were going to talk about. Um, so all those real moments, we try and keep the conference again authentic. So that's that's really important for us. Um, I find myself, you know, stuttering when I'm hosting the conversations uh, in panel discussions during a live conference. Uh, we are running late many times uh, when we are doing, a, again, a virtual conference. But again, all of them reflects, you know, kind of the, the authenticity and, uh, and then those are the kind of people that you know also end up attending our conferences that that do find that uh, they appreciate it more, right? They find it more mm-hmm. relatable. Um, yeah, and that's again, you know, very I would say very um, uh, kind of a self-driven uh, or self-fulfilling kind of approach, because it's just how I want to build the community that I follow this approach. We've talked several different times in kind of different contexts how important the speakers are for making a conference mm-hmm. worthwhile and convincing people to mm-hmm. attend. How do you identify the speakers that will draw the eyeballs and get the people you want to the conference and how do you convince them to actually show up? Absolutely. So I think um, definitely, you know, now we have a little bit of a brand repo in the community. So approaching speakers, even like the fancier speakers, um, at least we have a conversation with them. So it's usually not that we send an email into the ether and no one replies. So we usually, you know, at least get some kind of reply. Um, many, often, many times, you know, we've interacted with these leaders before because they either they were hiring uh, for their design teams and we kind of, you know, amplified the, the roles through our Slack group and things like those. So the relationships, definitely the relationship building, much like community building needs to be more ongoing so that when you do these conferences, you can go in, you know, ask for favors, uh, even like uh, kind of introductions from other leaders who might know someone, right? So that's that's kind of been one approach that has really worked well for us. Another aspect is when you're approaching these speakers, uh, you know, we put together a little bit of a speaker guide. So be as kind of uh, prepared as possible with all the questions that they might have, you know, uh, what are what is the structure of the conference? Which other speakers will be speaking? Because that gives them a little bit of validation that okay, I'm not the only fancy name there. You know, there are a few other legit folks also coming in, so it is a legit conference. Um, when you are compensating them, like share that upfront. And sometimes, you know, like even I don't know because you have a set budget, but some speaker might want more. Some don't care because the company is paying for their time. So usually, you know, I, I kind of laid out front and I'm like, 
this is kind of the budget we are playing with, you know, would really appreciate you can you can be honest. We've had speakers who were like, actually, I, I charge double of what you're offering. And sometimes we paid that, you know, because we did really value that speaker and someone else gave up their part of the budget. Um, so again, you know, trying to be just really authentic, trying to tell them what are you trying to achieve from this conference? Why are you putting together this conference? Um, and also, you know, what's your kind of the larger goal with the community? All those conversations, I think, really help. Um, and then kind of zooming out a little further, if you have, let's say, 20 speakers, then at least you need, I would say, like 20% of them to be really big names. So four speakers to be the major kind of like, uh, you know, uh, crowd pullers or kind of give, getting your validation stamp from the community. And then the other speakers can be, you know, a healthy mix of folks that are doing some really good work, but then also folks that are up and coming, right? And might not have even spoken at a conference before. All right, so we'll kind of close things out here. Um, everybody, we want to design X community. What's the URL for that? Designx.community. And what are, do you have any um, final words, advice for people trying to bootstrap a new community or, or like brand new conference? Yeah, I, I would say, uh, you know, do as upfront, as much upfront research as possible. Connect with as many community builders. Uh, community building is still more of an art than a science. So everyone's trying to figure mm -hmm. it out. You know, there are not very set principles that if you follow them, your community will be uh, really incredible. So approach as many community builders and usually you'll find them to be some of the nicest people and always willing to share their struggles and what worked for them. Uh, so do that. And thirdly, I would say just get started because many of the things you're going to learn from your community. So, you know, it's really key to just keep listening. What is your community wanting? What are they valuing? You might be putting together a conference, but all they want is kind of more Slack conversations, right? Um, or they might want more one-on-one -on -one networking icebreakers instead of, you know, doing larger content-rich formats. So really key to always keep listening as well. Excellent. This has been Indie Worldwide with Preet Singh. Check out designx.community. Um, Preet, thanks so much for being here. Apologies for all the Thank technical you. glitches today, but I think we powered through pretty well. <laughs>